All right. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. The, the elect that have come back for the last lesson this uh, semester, we're going to break. Uh, we will not have a theological equipping class in the month of July. Keep that in mind. And then we're going to hit the ground running, though, in August. All the lessons uh, coming up in the new semester will actually probably be a little more relevant. At least it will feel that way to you because we're going to be getting closer and closer to our day. So more of the figures that we mention or movements that we mention might already be familiar to you. But today... We're going to talk a little bit about the English Reformation. What is that? Okay, so think back to when the, uh, you know, the pilgrims or whoever come over, you know, back in 1942, a few years ago when Columbus sailed with the Nina the Pinta and the Santa Mayflower, whatever, you know the story. So when they come over for religious persecution, who are they rebelling against? The pilgrims and the Puritans, which are different groups. We'll talk about them uh, in the new semester. Where they're wanting a purity of the church. They're wanting to get away from and have religious freedom. From what are they trying to get away? The Church of England. Today we're going to talk about the Church of England, what is called Anglicanism. Okay, If you're uh, an Anglo, you're not just white or whatever. You're typically British. Uh, you're English. And so we're going to talk about the Church of England and how the Reformation affects England today. So let's pray, and then we will get into a fascinating story. Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have preserved your church despite our best attempts to ruin it, that you are gracious to sinners. We thank you. I pray that you would open our hearts to understand not just interesting history, but rather uh, understanding history in light of your word, that we would view history the way you view history. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's talk about the English Reformation. We're going to talk about the effects of the Protestant Reformation in Great Britain. And uh, so let, let me do a little background. I don't know how much you know about feudal systems and kings and stuff. Here's what you need to keep in mind. At this time, there are t- there's this huge bitter rivalry and it's between England, what is called the Kingdom of Tudors. You've probably heard of the Tudors, T-U-T-O-R, before you make a joke. The Kingdom of the Tudors. Uh, and Scotland, the Kingdom of the Stuarts. They're bitter rivals, okay? So Scotland and England, bitter rivals, Tudors versus the Stuarts. The English were allies with Spain, and the Scottish were allies with France. Now keep that in mind, okay? So you have France and Scotland, the French and the English hate each other, versus England, and, uh, and Spain. So keep that in mind as we get into a very important figure in church history, a guy who will in some sense be responsible for what is the, one of the largest, it's not one of, it is the largest Protestant denomination worldwide. The largest Protestant denomination worldwide is Anglicanism, okay? You don't just have it in England, you have it all over the world. The largest one in the United States that's Protestant is the Southern Baptist Convention. The largest Christian denomination overall by far is Roman Catholicism. But let's talk a little bit about Anglicanism. Look at this strapping young fellow, King Henry VIII. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy and uh, some of his lady troubles that he has. He ruled from 1509 through 1547. He was supposedly strong, handsome, and smart, despite maybe his picture. In addition, To knowing theology, he spoke Latin, French, Spanish, and English. So you have this king in England who's strong, who's smart, who cares about theology. The problem is, is that uh, he wants to divorce his wife, okay? That happens. We preached on divorce last week. See, it's so relevant. I mean, it changes entire nations. It's very, very relevant. To strengthen alliances with Spain, a Spanish princess named Catherine of Aragon. Now, that sounds like a very mythical name. It sounds like she should own some sort of like centaur or dragon or something. Catherine of Aragon... Who is Catherine of Aragon? She is the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. Remember Ferdinand and Isabella? They sent that Colombo guy over to discover the new world and he mislabeled them Indians and now it's offensive or whatever. That started with Ferdinand and Isabella and they have a daughter named Catherine. Now to strengthen their alliance with England, 
they marry off Catherine, but not originally to Henry VIII, okay? She was married to an English prince named Arthur when she was just 15 years old. Arthur died four months later, so she was given in marriage to Arthur's younger brother, Henry VIII. So here's what you got so far, if it's already confusing. Pretend for a second that I'm Henry, and I'm in England, and Spain is my ally. To strengthen those, we need to intermarry. My brother marries this Spanish princess, but now he dies, and so then I marry her. That's what's going on. Now, there's a few problems with that, the first one being biblical. Henry had to receive papal permission to marry Catherine because canon law and the church's interpretation of Leviticus 20.21 forbade a brother from marrying his brother's widow, okay? So Henry is now married to this young Spanish princess after his brother dies, and they just can't seem to have a male heir. Henry, that's the only thing he cares about. He wants to have a son because if he doesn't have a son, the kingdom is not gonna properly transfer the way that he wants it to. He wants to have a son so he can be the king and so his dynasty and his lineage can keep going. But the problem is, is that Catherine cannot bear a son. And so what do you think Henry is thinking is going on? He's thinking, I'm cursed by God. I wasn't supposed to marry my brother's widow and now I did and now she can't have a son. This is my fault. God hates me. The kingdom of England is certainly under a curse, okay? Catherine could not produce a male heir for Henry VIII, and their only surviving descendant was a princess named Mary Tudor. We'll talk about her in a second. Henry thought his marriage was cursed because he had married his brother's widow against Old Testament law. So Henry asked Rome for an annulment, but the Pope didn't want to offend Spain, so Henry's request for annulment was denied. The Catholic Church will not typically grant you a divorce because divorce or because marriage is a sacrament. It's like baptism, you can't undo it. So they'll grant an annulment. They'll say your marriage was just never legitimate to begin with. So Henry says, okay, this lady, I obviously shouldn't have married her. We're under a curse. I can't have a male heir. Dear Pope, please grant us an annulment. And he says, if I do that, all of Spain hates me. And I don't know if you know this, Spain is super Catholic, okay? So the Pope does not want to grant this annulment for this marriage. You might think, well, why can't Henry just take a second wife? Because Christianity has universally condemned polygamy. Okay? The only people that ever practice polygamy in church history are people that belong to cults. Mainline Christianity has never accepted that. If he just has a mistress and has a baby with that mistress or whatever, that's not a legitimate heir. He has to have a legitimate wife and only one that he can have an heir with if he wants his lineage to continue. So, though Henry had previously fought against Protestantism, Henry, by the way, is a very fervent Catholic, his desire to divorce Catherine prevailed in 1533 through 1534, Parliament and the king passed laws forbidding paying money to Rome, declaring his marriage illegitimate, and calling Henry VIII the, quote, supreme head of the Church of England. So think about how crazy this is. You've got a guy who's fervently Catholic, but because the Pope won't grant a divorce, he says, cool, we're not going to serve the Pope anymore, we'll start our own church, okay? So did the Church of England and Anglicanism only happen because of a guy's desire for divorce? Yes and no. In one sense, he was the catalyst that started England having their own church. But in another sense, the Reformation was already gaining ground in England, so it probably would have become Protestant eventually anyway. If you talk to someone who's Anglican, they're very insecure about this. You're like, so you're Henry VIII's descendant church? And they're like, no, you know, well, they're, they're the reformers, and they'll, they'll pontificate. It kind of happened because of the divorce, but it also probably would have happened anyway because there were a lot of inroads being made by Protestants in England. Now, why is Henry mad that his wife cannot produce a male heir? We're, we're modern people. 
We're scientific. Who is it that determines the gender of your child, the male or the female? It's the male. The woman always puts forward the X chromosome. It's the guy that can put forward an X or a Y. So it's the guy that actually determines it, but they didn't know that back then. What did they think happened back then? Here's what they thought, and this is because of the influence of Aristotle in the Roman Catholic Church. What Aristotle taught was that everything is wanting to turn into its ultimate fullest form. It's wanting to have a higher level of being. What does that mean? An acorn's job is not to just stay an acorn, it's to turn into what? A mighty oak tree. So if the acorn starts to sprout and you chop it down, there's been something wrong that's happened. It hasn't been brought to completion. It hasn't been uh, fully recognized. It hasn't met a higher level of being. An eagle with a broken wing to Aristotle is less of an eagle than it should be. An eagle's job is to soar. Well, here's what they thought about what caused you to be a man or a woman in the Middle Ages. For the medievals, the man's seed is always trying to turn into a man. And when that process gets stunted along the way, that's what a woman is. Very offensive, right? According to Aristotle and to a lot of the medievals, a woman is simply a deformed man. It's an acorn that didn't fully grow up, right? That's why they got little weak arms and stuff, you know? So it's, that's what they thought. Now you say, well, wait a second, Zach. Why then does the baby sometimes look like the mother? Well, if you've ever put like a popsicle in the freezer too long and it tastes like freezer, that's kind of the idea. The woman is an oven, she's an incubator, but it's really, they they thought that the full human was in the man's seed. And so he's thinking, what uh, what a terrible oven I have. This woman can't bring this seed to fruition so that I can have a male heir. That's why he's mad at these women. And he will accuse them of treason. To not allow the kingdom of England to flourish is the height of treason. Well, let's talk about Henry's ladies, okay? Told we're gonna have fun, we're gonna have fun. This is the last one before the break. We got to get into some fun stuff. So let's talk about Henry's ladies. He could only marry one of these at a time, of course, according to the law. A few things you need to know. We're not going to rate them, by the way, like hot or not. Their pictures are here just because it's interesting. So first, that lady right there is the Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon. He divorced Catherine, and Thomas Cranmer was the one that declared his marriage to be illegitimate. Thomas Cranmer will be, for England, kind of what Luther is for Germany, or what Calvin is for Geneva. Cranmer is gonna be one of the major players in the English Reformation. So then he married a woman named Anne Boleyn, who bore him only a daughter, Elizabeth, keep that name in mind. He accused her of adultery and she was executed, okay? So to get out of these marriages, he'll either divorce, because those are just willy-nilly now in England, he will declare that they have committed either treason or adultery, or he will, uh, you know, we'll see that eventually he just dies. So that's kind of the end of the the, the terrible reign here. So he marries Anne Boleyn. There's a picture of her right there, a slender-faced lady, Anne Boleyn, who's gonna bear him a daughter named Elizabeth. She's killed. Next, he then married a woman named Jane Seymour, who finally bore him a son. This would be his only son, Edward VI. There she is right there. After she died, so she died. So thankfully there wasn't, uh, you know, he's happy with her because she bears a son. After she died, he married Anne of Cleves, but divorced her and beheaded the guy who hooked them up. Can you imagine? You're just this guy that's the king's wingman. You know, you're his hype man at the ye old club or whatever where they're dancing ye old style. And you're like, this is Henry VIII. Ladies, who wants him? Anne of Cleves, you hook him up. He's like, I hate this lady. So he divorces her and he kills you. You know, it's tough to be in the king's employ. There's a picture there of Anne of Cleves. She's kind of looks like a little bunny, something very sweet. Number five, he then married a woman named Catherine Howard, whom he beheaded. 
He then married another Catherine. So this isn't like a Jerry Springer love triangle. This is like a, a love hep, you know, hexagon or something that's going on. So he has six wives. Three of them are named Catherine. That's got to cause problems. He then married Catherine Parr, a supporter of the Reformation. She survived, but only because she outlived Henry. Henry VIII died in 1547. So there is a lot of craziness going on here with Henry and these subsequent ladies because he just wants a male heir so bad. If you're not gonna give him a male heir, you get divorced, you get beheaded, you just happen to die, whatever it is. The story doesn't end well for you. You think eventually, if you're one of these ladies and you're thinking, I might wanna marry King Henry VIII, what happened to his other wives? You might think, maybe I should marry somebody else, right? Maybe a nice landlord or something that won't murder me. Now, there's a lot of things going on here, but to keep it simple, here's what you need to know. There's a lot of names and stuff I just gave you. That's confusing. Here's what you need to keep it simple. Here are the important children that will play a big role in the English Reformation. Mary Tudor from Catherine of Aragon, okay? Remember, she is Spanish. She's very Catholic. The king is the one that divorced her. She's disgraced. Her daughter, Mary Tudor. Elizabeth, uh, Edward VI, the only son from Jane Seymour, and Elizabeth from a lady named Anne Boleyn. If that's confusing, I've got a sweet picture for you. Look at this, the whiteboard is back, guys. It's back. Here we go. Again, forgive the handwriting. You have Henry VIII, and he married different women. I, I've picked out three in particular. Let me move this so you can see. Three in particular that are super important. Jane Seymour, by the way, the Catholic descendants are in green, and the Protestant descendants are in red. So you have Jane Seymour, who has a son, the only son, who will be Protestant. You have Catherine of Aragon, the disgraced, divorced Spanish lady, and her daughter, Mary Tudor. And you have Anne Boleyn and her daughter, who will be Protestant, who is Elizabeth. These are the main ones you need to know. If you forget all of that, if that's too complicated, just remember, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant. That's gonna be important for the lesson. Everybody good? See, church history is interesting. Think back to when you were in history class in elementary school and you made like a seven on your exam, and you're like, what is the deal with England and Ferdinand and Isabella? It's interesting now, huh? Because it's got Jesus in it. So let's talk about England leaning Protestant. Henry VIII was Catholic, not a Protestant supporter, but his desire to have freedom from Rome, especially on the issue of his marriage, led him to break with the Roman Catholic Church. Those who supported Protestantism used this to push Protestant ideas in England, okay? Luther's works at this time were circulating in England, and they were especially circulating at Cambridge and Cambridge University. To this day, Cambridge is more Protestant than Oxford. Why? Oxford is more inland. Cambridge is closer to the water. And so Luther's ideas could circle through that more easily. And so there was a group known as the White Horse Circle who used to meet at a pub called the White Horse Inn who would gather to drink beer and discuss Protestant theology in England. So you have this cool circle of guys, they get together at the tavern, they have beer, they talk about Luther's ideas, and they start spreading it more at Cambridge than at Oxford. The Church of England, Anglicanism, began at this time. It was still very Catholic in liturgy, meaning in church practice, and theology, but would become increasingly Protestant in theology over the next few years. If you think of the Church of England today, or you think of Anglicanism, what you need to think of is high church liturgy, very Catholic with, you know, the robes and the processions and all these kind of things, but Protestant when it comes to theology, okay? So they are Protestant technically. Thomas Cranmer, a Protestant and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Again, a great title. Look at all these titles. Catherine of Aragon, Archbishop of Canterbury. You just, you hear Lancelot's sword hitting knights in the background. It's, it's, a, fun, it's a fun time 
despite all the, you know, plague and death and stuff. He ordered for a Bible to be translated into English. Remember, the official Bible of the Catholic Church was the Vulgate written in Latin. An English Bible was to be placed in every English church. He also helped write the 39 articles. That's the statement of faith of the Anglican Church. The articles leaned Calvinistic in several of its positions. By the way, the 39 articles, even today, is a great statement of faith. I don't agree with everything in it or else I would be Anglican, but it's, it's really good. So you can look it up online. It is a helpful statement of faith. It's orthodox. It's excellent. Henry's only son, Edward VI, would reign for only about six years before his untimely death. Henry VIII cannot catch a break. He finally has a boy, and when his boy's on the throne, he reigns six years, and then he dies. He was kind of a sickly, weak fellow. But during that time, because he was pushing, and the, the whole kingdom, in a sense, was pushing Protestant, the wine was allowed to be served to the laity in communion. Previously, only the priest could take the wine. You just had to have the bread. But in Catholic theology, there's the idea of what's called concomitance. The whole Christ, body and blood, is in both elements. Clergy were allowed to marry. Whoo! Amen. Okay? I, uh, I could be Anglican because I, I can marry. Images were withdrawn from the churches. The Book of Common Prayer, which is the standard Anglican book on liturgy, was produced in English primarily by Thomas Cranmer. So we see that uh, stern-looking fellow there. That guy is the one that declares Henry's marriage illegitimate. That guy helps write the 39 articles. That guy helps write the Book of Common Prayer. That guy is like the patron saint, which would be something that uh, I'm using ironically, uh, of English theology, okay, is gonna be Thomas Cranmer. So thing, it looks like England is gonna just be Protestant. Looks like everything's good, everything is Protestant, but something's gonna happen after Edward's death and it's gonna revert back to Catholicism. So if you wanna think of it, England goes Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, thence forevermore, okay? Starts Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, and then it keeps going Protestant. So there's several back and forth changes. Let's talk about it leaning Catholic. When Edward died, his half-sister, Mary Tudor, the bitter daughter of a disgraced Catherine of Aragon, pushed to return England to Catholicism. Mary was mad that her mom's marriage had been declared illegitimate and therefore was fervently Catholic and afraid of losing her royal rights, okay? So why would this chick, Mary Tudor, want to make sure that Catholicism remained legitimate in England? Why? Because her title rests on her mom. So if her mom was divorced by Henry legitimately, then she doesn't get to be queen. She doesn't get to rule, okay? So she has a political interest here. She also hates Protestantism. She also hates that Henry, you know, sent her mom away. So she has a lot of reasons to be angry and bitter. Look at her, look at her in the picture, right? Does she look like she's gonna slap your knuckles with a ruler if you're not holding your pencil correctly? She does. She officially returned England to the Pope in 15. 54. She demanded that married Protestant clergy divorce their spouses, and she had 300 Protestants burned at the stake. For this, she gained the nickname of that delicious vodka, tomato juice drink, a Bloody Mary. She was called Bloody Mary because she killed so many Protestants. I don't know how the drink got the name, but that's who it's named after, okay? So the next time you're on vacation or something, think you're drinking the blood of the Protestant martyrs, right, because of this lady, Mary Tudor, okay? She had Thomas Cranmer burned at the stake, okay? So that spot right there, that little uh, cross there on the street, that is the spot where Thomas Cranmer was burned at Oxford. I took that picture, actually, and they have this kind of mini memorial, if you will, to, uh, to Thomas Cranmer because he was killed under uh, evil Mary Tudor. Now, here's what's interesting with Cranmer. Cranmer had been given the opportunity to recant his Protestant views, 
And he did. He cowered under the pressure of Catholicism and he recanted his Protestant views. But then he repented and he recanted his recantation. He came back and he said, you know what? I signed this. I shouldn't have signed it. I'm a Protestant. So when they burned him at the stake, he took the hand that signed his original recantation and he stuck it down in the flames to let the offending hand be the one that first burned. Okay, fascinating. Thomas Cranmer dies as a Protestant martyr, sticking his, uh, sign that, his hand that signed a uh, recantation down in the flames. He repents and he comes back, if you will. You ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? It's one of the greatest selling Christian works of all time. Fox's Book of Martyrs was written at this time and focused increasingly on Protestant martyrs. Mary Tudor died in 1558, okay? So everybody with me on the story so far? Again, there's a lot of names. There's a lot of, you know, weird ancestry things. So let me just break it down for you. Henry VIII is Catholic, married to a Catholic girl. He does, she can't bear him a son, he wants a son. So he keeps divorcing or killing women until he finally gets a male heir who will die only six years later after being on the throne. And to get rid of uh, the the Church of uh, Rome, to get rid of Catholicism, he starts the Church of England. They will be their own autonomous Christian group. They will still be Orthodox, but the, uh, the head of that group will be the king originally, and then the Archbishop of Canterbury. It will not be the Pope in Rome. So his son is Protestant, he dies, Mary Tudor becomes Catholic, kills all these people, and at this point, England is Catholic again, okay? The, the, her and the Pope have made friends, and England is Catholic, but it's gonna swing again to become Protestant again. Elizabeth, okay, a fiery redheaded lady that's, uh, there's several movies about. I mean, there's, if you've ever seen the Elizabeth movies, they're actually pretty good. Uh, she's a fiery redhead, her name is Elizabeth. She is the daughter of Anne Boleyn. Okay, right here. My shadow's in the way. Elizabeth, you can't overshadow Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the daughter of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII, then becomes queen. There's a picture of her and all her regality. Now, here's what she realized. She realized that if England was Roman Catholic, then she couldn't be queen because her dad's marriage to Anne Boleyn would then be illegitimate. So she pushed to have the Church of England be a moderate form of Protestantism. It could not be extreme Protestantism. That would offend the Catholics. Nor could it be fully Roman Catholic. What she wanted was called a via media that could unite England, a middle way in between Protestantism and Catholicism. Okay, so Mary Tudor realizes that if her if if Catholicism's not the religion of England, she can't be queen. Elizabeth realizes that if Catholicism is the is the religion of England, then she can't be queen because. Henry VIII, her dad, was only able to marry her mom because of Protestantism, because they were the Church of England, because they no longer recognized the authority of the church in Rome. Elizabeth will go on to be one of the most famous queens in English history, okay? She changed the royal title from supreme head of the church to the only supreme governor of this realm to make it less offensive to Protestants. Protestants did not like, Protestants didn't like the Pope being this great figure. They especially didn't want a king then just taking on these papal titles and so Elizabeth will downplay her title, okay? She'll let the church be the church a little bit more. Elizabeth had her cousin, Mary Stuart of Scotland, executed because Mary was involved in a plot to oust Elizabeth. Look at this, so interesting. Okay, this lady's trying to kill you, you find out about it, or trying to get you off your throne, so she has her killed. Had Elizabeth been declared illegitimate, the throne of England would have passed to Catholic Mary Stuart. Catholics have a tendency to name their daughters Mary. I don't know why, but that has a a tendency to happen. The Pope excommunicated Elizabeth, 
And in an act of revenge, she took it out on the Jesuits, which is a Catholic religious order. She had 125 of them executed in England, okay? Now think back again to the Nina, the Pinta, and the Mayflower, and think back to the pilgrims coming over, and think back to all of that, okay? There's gonna become a very important, I realize, by the way, I'm joking. I realize that Columbus and Spain and the Nina, right, the little girl, the Pinta, the painted ship, and the Santa Maria, the Saint Mary, they're all Spanish. Yes, I know, I'm just making a joke to keep you awake. When English settlers land in the New World, there will be a very, very important state called Virginia. Who is Virginia named after? Named after Queen Elizabeth, okay? Not, not, not the Virgin Mary, it's named after Elizabeth I. She was called the Virgin Queen. She was not married. And so that was an uh, honorific title. Virginia is named after the Virgin Queen there, Elizabeth I. Okay, now let's talk about the Reformation in Scotland and a guy named John Knox. In 1528, the first truly Protestant Scottish martyr, Patrick Hamilton, again, Catholics name their daughters Mary, people from you know, Scotland and Ireland and stuff name their kids Patrick, whatever. Patrick Hamilton was killed in Scotland. St. Andrews became the bastion of Protestantism in Scotland. And you have the figure. So in every area, you have kind of the main Protestant leader. In England, it's Thomas Cranmer. In Germany, it's Luther. In uh, Switzerland and France, Geneva area, it's gonna be Calvin. Uh, it's gonna be Zwingli in other parts of Switzerland, etc. The patron saint, again, I'm using the term ironically, the, uh, the uh, main Protestant leader in Scotland is gonna be a guy named John Knox. He led the Reformation in Scotland and founded the Reformed Church of Scotland. Now, here's why I like John Knox. He is the William Wallace of church history, right? He's Scottish, fighting against Catholicism, the formerly Catholic English and such. I'm sure he just painted his face blue and, you know, they may take our Bibles, but whatever. So that was him. He was the William Wallace of this era. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. He's an interesting figure. He spent time in Geneva with Calvin and in Zurich with Heinrich Bullinger. That was Zwingli's successor. So he's studying under these great reformed leaders. He was imprisoned for being part of a plot to myrtle, myrtle, to murder. I mixed cardinal and murder. He was imprisoned for being part of a plot to murder the last Catholic cardinal of Scotland, a guy named David Beaton, okay? So he's kind of got this uh, Bonhoeffer-esque-ness about him, willing to kill political authorities if they're bad. He was captured by French Catholics and forced to work 19 months as a galley slave on a French warship. Knox wrote against the Catholic queens of Mary Tudor in England, the regent in Scotland, and Catherine de' Medici, right, in France. And the name of his work, so he's writing against these Catholic queens, and here's the name of his work, the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. The titles back then were better, you know, Sensing Jesus or whatever. The titles are better now, back then than they are today, okay? Now, you might say, okay, he's writing just against Catholic ladies. Does that mean he's gonna offend other ladies? You bet. Elizabeth was offended at the pejorative way it portrayed female leaders in power as, quote, contrary to nature. When her French husband died, Mary Stuart returned to Scotland to be their leader and Knox preached against her, calling her, quote, the new Jezebel. That's a common thing in church history. When you have a woman who is ungodly, who promotes ungodly policies, they're often compared to uh, the lady from the Old Testament who persecuted God's prophets, Jezebel. The Scottish Parliament in 1560 declared independence from the Pope, declared the Catholic mass to be illegal, and accepted the Scottish Confession of Faith. Scotland, listen to this, Scotland became the strongest pillar for Protestantism with the exception of Geneva. So if you meet somebody who is reformed, they typically fall into a few camps. 
They can be the Dutch Reformed out of Holland. There's a lot of uh, Reformed people coming out of uh, Holland at that time, not so much anymore. They can be the Huguenots coming out of France. They can be people from Geneva, and they can be people from Scotland. Scotland's gonna have a huge influence on, uh, on Reformed theology to this day. If you want to study good Protestant Orthodox theology, you might study at a place like Aberdeen or St. Andrews or some one of these places in Scotland, these excellent universities that are very Protestant. Now, they've gone liberal like everything has, but they're, uh, they're not bad. So, in 1592, Presbyterian and Presbyterianism became the official religion of Scotland, okay? According to one church historian, John Knox was a strange and rather frightening character. He was narrow-minded and intolerant. He lacked generosity of spirit and loved to hate, but he possessed immense courage and feared no one. In the pulpit, he was at his most powerful. He mesmerized thousands of Scots who were prepared to lay their lives down for Protestantism at his behest, okay? Everybody good so far? We got a lot of names, a lot of people, a lot of strange lady relationships going on. Everybody good? That's how Protestantism will come to England and Scotland. Ireland, to this day, is still very much held out for Catholicism. In fact, you have that big fighting going on in Northern Ireland between whom? Protestants and Catholics, okay? Protestants and Catholics. It is a huge cultural battle to this day. Why, let me push it even further, why is America so Protestant? Or why were we founded as Protestants? Let me say it another way. Let me say it a more offensive way. Why was America so awesome, whereas Canada and Mexico not quite as awesome? Why is that? Do you know why? Because it happened to be that the place that the English explorers landed is what we know as North America, and it's because of Protestantism. Places that are Protestant have a tendency to flourish economically because work is good in Protestantism. It's not just this labor you have to do if you're not clergy as in Catholicism. The Bible is being taught, so education flourishes. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Brown are all started to train Protestant ministers. The reason that America became great was because, to say it another way, you can't make America great again, you have to make America Protestant again. Somebody get that shirt put on, you know, printed on a shirt. Make America Calvinist again. That's what would make it great. The reason that those other countries were not as great is literally because of Protestantism. With Protestantism, you get education. With Protestantism, you get uh, encouragement of marriage and the goodness of the family. With Protestantism, you get capitalism. Capitalism begins with the Reformation, specifically with the theology of Calvin. That's what made it great was Protestantism. So when you think, why are we studying church history? Is this relevant? The yes, the reason that you're in a church right now that is Protestant and you're not just Catholic or something it has to do with history. Had Henry VIII never divorced his wives, we might all be Catholic still right now, okay? So keep that in mind, it's very interesting. Let's talk about the Bible and the English Reformation, okay? So we're talking about the English Reformation, let's talk about the role the Bible will play. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the English Bible and then uh, we'll have some time for, for questions and that kind of thing. John Wycliffe, let's talk about this figure, we've mentioned him before. He's really before the start of the English Reformation, so he's more of this forerunner He's kind of this uh, proto-Protestant, if you want to say it that way. John Wycliffe, 1329 through 1384. He was a professor at Merton College, Balliol College, Queens College, and Canterbury Hall, which is now called Christ Church College at Oxford University. So he's super smart, and here are some things that he did. He, along with his students, translated the first Bible into English from Latin in 1382, okay? So the first English Bible is certainly not the King James Version of 1611. The first one to make an entire English translation of the Bible is gonna be Wycliffe with his students, but here's the tricky part. 
they translate it from Latin into English instead of from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, as it was originally written, into English, okay? But he's gonna be the first one who is translating the Bible into English. For this, his friends and fellow translators were burned at the stake with Bibles tied around their necks, okay? So this was a serious offense. For most of church history, you don't have a Bible. You couldn't afford one, and even if you had one, it was written in Latin, and you probably didn't even read at all. The literacy rate, 90% of men were illiterate in the Middle Ages, 99% of women were illiterate in the Middle Ages. So not only could you not read your native tongue, you certainly couldn't read Latin, so you just didn't have the Bible accessible to the common people. Do you see how that could lead to corruption and bad things in the church? If the people of God don't have the word of God? Yes, and so there are some people that would say, well, why don't we translate it into the language of the people? And the Catholic Church says, you can't do that. It's Holy Scripture, you can't translate it. And they're like, you already translated it into Latin. It was not written in Latin. It was written in Hebrew. And then parts of Daniel and Ezra, Maya and Aramaic and then the New Testament in Greek. And so anyway, this guy Wycliffe is gonna do that. His friends are killed with Bibles around their necks. Wycliffe was condemned for heresy at the Council of Constance in 1415 and his body was exhumed. That means dug up and burned in 1428, 44 years after he had died. So he dies, 44 years later, the Catholics are like, we hate that Wycliffe guy. What can we do to him? He's already dead. I know what we can do. We can make the resurrection harder for God. Let's burn him. So they dig up his dead body and burn it. There is a group here in Dallas that is called Wycliffe Bible Translators. And what they do is they take seminary students and they teach them in Bible translation methods. And it is a group that goes to foreign indigenous people. They learn the language and they translate the Bible into that tongue, okay? So you can get your degree. You can get a Master of Arts in Biblical Exegesis and Linguistics and you can learn to translate the Bible, and that's your missionary work. You go to some tribe in Africa that doesn't have a Bible, you learn their language, you've already learned the biblical languages, and so you can be somebody who can help translate the Bible into a new tongue. It's pretty amazing, and they're named after this guy, John Wycliffe. Next, William Tyndale. William Tyndale, 1494 through 1536. A scholar who had studied Oxford and then at Cambridge. In 1526, he published the first printed English edition of the New Testament, and here's what's unique about him. He published it from Greek instead of Latin. So Bible from Latin, Wycliffe, New Testament in uh, English from Greek, Tyndale, okay? Portions of the Old Testament were later published in 1534. So Tyndale's gonna be the main guy that's gonna translate the Bible into English from Hebrew and Greek instead of from Latin, which Wycliffe had already done. For this, do you think the king of England would praise him? They would thank him for his accomplishment? Now the people in the kingdom can read about commands, such as submitting to the government. You think this would be a good thing if you were the king? Well, here's what happens to Tyndale. On October the 6th, 1536, Tyndale was hanged and his body burned at the stake. It was reported that his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now let me ask you this. How long after his death would it be before the king of England, that's Henry VIII, would allow for an English version to be printed. Less than a year. Oh, he just barely missed it. He should have gone on vacation. He could have come back and he could have lived. They kill him, they burn him at the stake for translating the Bible into English. And in less than a year, the king's gonna be like, let's get an English Bible in all the churches. If you think politics now is maddening, just imagine that you had kings where there was no checks and balances. I realize the checks and balances are kind of going away, but just imagine, imagine what that would be like in the Middle Ages. Let's talk about another scholar, a Cambridge scholar, Miles Coverdale, 1488 through 1569. 
He was the first to publish a complete translation of the entire Bible into English, okay? Publish, there's a difference between translating and publishing. So just to clarify something we said earlier during a Reformation lesson, Erasmus is the first one to publish a Greek edition of the New Testament. He's not the first one to translate it. It's already in Greek. He's not the first one to write it. It's already there. Publishing is different than writing. Writing, translating, Tyndale. Publishing is gonna be Miles Coverdale, okay? In 1535, now you need to understand, and I'm about to get into the King James Version here. The King James Version was certainly not the first English translation of the Bible. You'll hear people say that. I love the KJV, KJV only. I'm a King Jimmy guy because it's the first English Bible. It was not. There were other English versions that were popular this time, including the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible that had strong reformed leanings, the Bishop's Bible, and most historically, the King James Version. Now, let's talk a little bit about the King James Version of the Bible because this is going to have a massive influence, not only on theology, but on the English language. It's gonna have a massive influence on the English language. Luther's German Bible is one of the most influential things in the German language post the Reformation. The King James Version of the Bible is gonna be one of the most influential things on the English language. This is a book that everybody's gonna be able to read and you're gonna hear it in churches. By the way, it was mandatory that you attended a church service back in England. You would uh, be thrown in the stocks if you did not. And so everyone's gonna hear from it and that's the English that's gonna become enshrined is gonna be in the King James Version. So let me say a few things before I say things you might not like. The King James Version is not a bad version of the Bible. If you want to use that version, go for it. There's nothing wrong, it's not bad, it's not heretical. You can use it, okay? It is a masterpiece for its day. Considering what they were able to do with the little resources they had, it was incredible. The scholars who translated it are incredible. However, it is not the best English translation and let me tell you the main reason why. We have discovered so many more manuscripts since the time of the Reformation, okay? We've discovered so many more manuscripts since the time of the Reformation. I'll I'll explain this in a second of what those are as I get into it. So I wanna give a note of respect to the KJV, but we've had some people ask us here at Parkway, why do you guys use a more modern English version instead of the KJV? Let me give you a few reasons why. King James Version. It was commissioned by James I, hence King James. James I of England, a known homosexual, and who was originally the King of Scotland. That has nothing to do with the version of the Bible, just super interesting, okay, just super interesting. He wanted a Bible that all English Protestants like. So he realizes Protestantism keeps gaining ground in England. Let's have a Bible that everyone can use because different churches at that time, they were all using, you know, if they're a Protestant, they're using an English Bible, but there's different versions. And he thought it would be wise if we were all looking at the same English text. That would be smart. And so he commissioned 54 scholars out of the towns of Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster to create an accurate English translation. It was first produced in 1611 and originally included the Apocrypha. In fact, until about 1826, almost all versions of the King James Version had the Apocrypha. Now that's interesting. If I talk to some like Bible-thumping, door-to-door, fiery, independent Baptist, and he's like, I love the King James Version, 1611. I say, oh, okay, so you love the Apocrypha. You love Tobit. You love First Maccabees. Well, no, I, I don't love those. I just love the KJV I had. Okay, you just acknowledged there are different KJVs. So which one is God's word? Which one's the real one if you think that's the only version of the Bible to use? There are some people with the King James Version, they get really weird. They almost act like Paul spoke English or that Moses spoke English and to try to translate from Hebrew and Greek is somehow bad. That's not the case. The original one, and for several hundred years, it had the Apocrypha in it. So if you wanna be an original KJV only, 1611 person, enjoy your Apocrypha. The original title 
was the Holy Bible containing the Old Testament and the New, newly translated out of the original tongues and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by his majesty's special commandment appointed to be read in churches. Again, their titles back then, so much better than what we had, okay? You know exactly what this book is about. Or should we read it in churches? It's in the title. Has it been revised? It has. Are the scholars diligently appointed? You bet. It gives you all the stuff you need to know, all the good stuff, okay? The KJV used Erasmus's Greek New Testament, which was great for its time, but not as good as modern Greek editions. Let me explain what I mean by that. When I say that the KJV was good for its time, but we found a bunch of manuscripts since then. How many Greek manuscripts did the KJV translators use for the New Testament? The answer is eight. That's it, eight. They come from the Middle Ages, so they're very late, and there were eight of them. In fact, they didn't, uh, Erasmus for his Greek New Testament that he published, it did not even have all of the book of Revelation. Erasmus had to translate from Latin back into Greek so that you could have a completed Greek New Testament. And that's what the KJV translators are gonna use for the KJV. Eight manuscripts don't even have a full version of Revelation and they all come from the Middle Ages. What do we have today? Well, today we have 5,700 Greek manuscripts going back to the first century. We have 10,000 Latin manuscripts and over a million quotes from the church fathers. So you can see when someone says, why don't you use the KJV at Parkway? The answer is because we want to get as close to the original as possible and modern translations by default will be better at that because we have so much more research now. We have so many more manuscripts that we're able to compare. They're much older. We're able to look and do the, the science of what's called textual criticism. We have a whole theological equipping class on that if you want to know more about it, but that's why we do that. The KJV used Erasmus's Greek New Testament, which was great for its time, but not as good as modern Greek editions. Erasmus's text used about eight Greek manuscripts, which were from the Middle Ages, and didn't even have all of Revelation in Greek. He had to translate Latin portions of Revelation back into Greek to have a completed New Testament, okay? So again, one more stone to throw if you're a KJV-only person. The American Bible Society compared six versions of the KJV from the 19th century and found over 24,000 differences in English translations. I just believe the KJV, you shouldn't be changing the Bible. By the way, we're never changing the Bible. The Bible's not the English Bible. The Bible's Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. You shouldn't be changing the Bible. This is the perfect translation of God's word. Which KJV? If you just compare six versions from the 19th century, there are 24,000 differences. Which one exactly do you mean? There are also many mistranslations of words and such in the KJV, and it's important to remember that language changes over time. So, just to keep you awake, I'll give you a few. It's important to keep in mind that language changes and the meaning of words change. To call somebody nice now as a compliment, it used to be an insult, okay? So it's important that we update whatever version of the Bible you have. It's important that when hundreds and hundreds of years go by that you update it because words change meaning, right? When James in the KJ version, KJV version in the book of James where it says that if a man weareth the gay clothing come into your assembly, that means something super different today, right? It's meaning festive. It's not meaning what the term means today. Or I like this one in 1 Kings 11.1, 1, Solomon loved many strange women. It means originally foreign women. That's what it means by strange women, but you hear that and you think like, what's wrong with her? What's, what's she doing? What is it exactly that makes her so strange? So that's gonna be what's going on with the English Reformation. Now, here's what we're gonna talk about when we come back uh, after the, uh, the break. We're gonna talk about the form of English theology that's going to influence the colonies. The first lesson I think we have back when we come back is gonna be a group known as the Puritans. 
What are they trying to purify, do you think? Just go ahead and, just go ahead and shout it out. Purify what church? The Anglican church, the Church of England, right? That's what they're trying to be. That's why they're called Puritans. They're a group that's gonna say, I don't think that the Church of England has gone far enough Protestant. There's all these Catholic things that are still there. They make me very uncomfortable. I want to just have an entire society built on the Bible. I want to just have a city on a hill that everyone can see. And that is gonna be the type of Christianity that's gonna directly influence you and I. The reason America again flourished was because of Puritanism. They have certain family values. They have certain views when it comes to law. They have certain views when it comes to God's sovereignty and theology. They have certain views when it comes to work. All of that will end up influencing America, which will then go on to influence other things. The original type of Christianity you have in America is Puritanism, and so we're gonna talk about that after the break. It's important to keep in mind how we take so many things for granted when it comes to theological things like this. You probably... If you, you, you had access to a Bible from the time you were a child, if you grew up in church or even if you didn't grow up in church, you could get one at a library, you could steal one, it's the most shoplifted book in the world, right, which is ironic, but you know, if they're gonna read something, I guess. Uh, you had access to churches, a church on every corner. You had creeds and stuff built into what you would say at national assemblies. You would have all this kind of stuff, and we just take that for granted. We don't realize that there are some key elements that God is sovereignly ordaining, and had he not done that, things would have turned out differently. Can God use evil for a good purpose? Yes. Let's look at this guy, Henry VIII, and his desire for divorce and his lust for power and his pride of wanting a male heir. Because of that, a lot of good things happen. That doesn't mean that what he did was good. It's still bad. He will still stand before God in judgment for what he does, but will God give a straight lick with a crooked stick? Can God hit a bullseye with a crooked arrow? Yes, he can. And so we should be thankful that we realize that it's not just that God has given us his word and that's it. God remains sovereign and he's sovereign over his church. So when you freak out, when you're scared, when you don't know what the future holds, remember, God doesn't freak out. God doesn't get scared. God is not worried about all the things. There's a lot of peace you can take in studying church history because you get to see two things. One, that Jesus is faithful to love his bride despite his bride's best attempts to mess it up. And you can also realize that God is, God uses broken and evil and sinful people and he still loves them. The whole history of the Christian church is us shooting ourselves in the foot. The reason I like studying church history is because it's so unchristian. That's why I like it. And yet God is kind and loving and gracious. So let's pray. Many sermon that over. Let's pray, and then we'll get into some Q&A. Father, we love you. We thank you for today. I pray that you would uh, encourage us, that you would send the Spirit, and he would encourage us. I pray that we would have a great break as we break for July, that it wouldn't be a time of stress and frustration, but rather we'd sleep in, and we'd hang out, and we'd get donuts with the kids or whatever it might be. You're good to us. You're kind to us. We confess that as your church, we are often look more like a harlot than we do a bride, and yet you still decided to love us. You still called us your bride. We thank you. It's for your glory. Amen.